0: back here once again with the Fueled by Passion podcast. My name is John Archibald from Resolution Promotions. I am your host. It brings me great pleasure to welcome in our guest today, who is uh, Joe Lisi, good friend of mine who I also like to refer to uh, the most brilliant analytical mind when it comes to uh, the uh, game of football, in particular college football. But uh, Joe, before we even jump into everything, uh, let the people know how you're feeling and you know how everything's going for you in the midst of this offseason.
1: Well, yeah, this is the most important uh, time of the year, John, and thanks for having me, uh, a great friend of mine, and I love talking uh, about college football with you. But this is the most important time of the year for college football analysts because the season just ended about a month, month and a half ago, and, and this is where a lot of analysts take time off. Well, This is really where I uh, delve into the numbers in terms of really getting a better understanding about what happened in the previous year. And it's the most depressing time of the year because we do have about five or six months before we kick it up a notch back in August and September. So uh, I'm really doing uh, the dirty work, as we say, for college football analysts, but uh, nothing better than talking college football with you.
0: Absolutely, and uh, so we'll pull you out of the trenches for a little bit, Joe, and uh, let the people know the kind of the backstory on what got you to where you are today. And without any any question whatsoever, uh, once again, the name of the show is the Fueled by Passion Podcast, and you will hear the passion that Joe has for the game of football all the way through this episode. But Joe, the way we like to start the show is we kind of say, if you were Joe, is actually an author, so this is kind of an ironic question. But Joe, if there was a book written about you page one of the book the introduction in the book how would the story of Joe Lisi start
1: Uh, I just grew up, uh, John, loving the game of football. I mean, I played a bunch of sports uh, as a kid, but uh, football stood out above the rest. I mean, played and started uh, football at the age of five in in Brooklyn, New York. And when we moved to New Jersey, uh, it was the favorite game of mine. I mean, I I stood uh, watching college, pro, high school football each and every, you know, Day For the most part, I mean, uh, back in the days of the early 80s, um, I used to tape games and, and, you know, built up a collection uh, of about 900 games that I would watch over and over again. But you're talking about a kid that, you know, when I was younger, uh, I was forced to take piano lessons. And, uh, you know, took piano lessons, uh, with a football helmet on because I didn't want to uh, play the piano, but, uh, wanted to play the game of football. That's all I really cared about. And, um, you know, it's interesting. The passion for the game has never left me even after my playing days. And, you know, I used to take games. I used to, I, I was so much of a junkie that I used to take pictures of my, my football pads. As I was younger, uh, you know, with the days of, a of a Polaroid camera, I used to take pictures of my pads, my knee pads, my thigh pads. So I was just, you know, OCD in, in terms of the game of football, everything intrigued me about it. And I used to read about it, um, as much as possible and we're going before the internet so sports illustrated any type of books that i can find uh, every time uh you know papers newspapers my dad would bring home the new york post the daily news i would read about the game of football and and wanted to know more and um you know i played as a kid uh from five all the way up until uh 18 years old uh through through high school and college um and you know unfortunately you know, in high school, it was my best year. You know, uh, I started as a freshman, um, and, and when you look at it, uh, played. But my senior year was the really year that I stood out. I played in the Delaware Wing T, John. Um, and it's, it's incredible because Delaware Wing T, almost a, 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 a variation of the option, doesn't even exist for the most part in high school sports anymore. And right. I was a wingback that led the team with 12 receptions. <laughs> 12 receptions <laughs> for 205 yards. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, it's just it, the game of football is really shaped my life. Um, I wound up playing uh, at Don Bosco Prep, which is a perennial power uh, in, in New Jersey and, and nationally over the last decade or so, but before uh, they were a perennial power, they were a blue-collar program that was trying to get back to uh, I want to say success. When I went there back in 1984 and 1985, um, you know, th- they were a middle-of-the-road program. And, uh, you know, you talk about um, blue collar. I mean, our field was all mud. <laughs> our, 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 our our track program was, um, our track had pebbles and gravel on it. It wasn't even a real track that you see today. So um, it really shaped you. It shaped me as as a person because it taught me how to overcome adversity and really um, find out about yourself as as a a young man.
0: Absolutely, and it's it it kind of it helped paint a picture a little bit, Joe. That it's you know they say a lot of things that you do as a kid you don't even realize it's setting you up for when you uh, get further on into your professional career and everything. The thing that kind of struck me is when you were saying you actually recorded on vhs cassettes the games and you had up to 900 games that you were breaking down analytically and that just really made so many things make so much more sense to me when i hear you talk about <laughs> and how well you break down the games but um obviously post high school you did go on to play in college um you know and not to, to cut into the story too much but you dealt with some injuries but briefly talk about uh, your experience um you know as a college football player
1: yeah. I mean, I was supposed to go to Lehigh. I mean, that's where, you know, I, I say it again, I was an all Bergen, uh, you know, cornerback, uh, all County and, um, you know, I got recruited as a cornerback in, in high school and that's where I was supposed to go. Lehigh showed interest and, and, but we're going back to the days where they didn't get obviously uh, Patriot league programs, didn't give a uh, scholarships. They gave grants. And, um, you know, uh, back in the day, I, took off when I, I was, when I was a senior in high school, John, I was only 16 years old. I I moved from New York to New Jersey and the cutoff dates were different. My birthday's in December. So I played my senior season as a a 16 year old, uh, senior. Uh, I was the youngest guy on the team. And, uh, you know, uh, so I was uh, not as uh, mature as some of the, you know, 17 and 18 year old players. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I showed up each and every uh, week and got better and, and was really playing my best football uh, the last game of the year against uh, Bergen Catholic uh, that we lost to. And we didn't make the states. And uh, shortly thereafter, I go to uh, I go to uh, turn 17 and I take the day off of school. And uh, I go skiing. been skiing since I'm five years old. And um, unfortunately, tear my ACL and MCL <laughs> on the bunny slope. So I uh, have to take my uh, recruiting visit to Lehigh on, uh, after the surgery. Uh, five and a half hours. Uh, you know, uh, five and a half hours surgery. Wind up having a screw in my knee, the whole bit. Um, and have to go to Lehigh. And I'm guessing well, Lehigh. Five and a half hours.
0: I'm guessing Lehigh yeah. wasn't too excited about having you showing up with a, uh, no. with a blown out knee.
1: No, and sure, right after that, uh, the coach turned to my dad and, and, and told him, uh, he's going to have to walk on. There's no, there's no more, uh, there's no more, uh, you know, grant, there's no more, uh, you know, money involved. We'll see how he heals. And, and after that, that, that didn't sit well with me. So I wound up going to Gettysburg, which is division three. And, uh, went to division three Gettysburg and, um, same thing, you know, You know, struggled that first year because my knee built up fluid and, uh, you know, did not have uh, the type of year that I wanted and got onto the field, you know, I want to say the last three games of the year and with a brace on. And, you know, the college experience back back then, you know, it was college. It's not like what you see in the elaborate programs, even at the high school and collegiate level. We're talking, you know, dirt, grind, muck, I mean, this stuff, uh, you know, in college back in the day was really what you think about student athletes. I mean, you know, now it's it's elaborate. We think about the pro programs and uh, college boarded some of the, you know, mediocre high school programs that we saw. Um, And, you know, Gettysburg was great. You know, my coach coach. you know, was still there. Barry Streeter, his son Brandon Streeter, was the former quarterback of Clemson. And um, and Coach Streeter was uh, was a good guy, but he was like the Joe Paterno back in the day of Division three football. You know, you couldn't wear, you know, uh, white cleats. You had to wear the black cleats. You, you couldn't, you know, show any style or flair. Um, and that really was, uh, you know, it was hard. You know, especially being a player and dealing with injuries, so um, I wound up leaving after my first year at Gettysburg, and, and wound up going to uh, Fordham and walked on there. And um, and from that time, um, you know, just really never lived up to the potential. I want to say as as a college football player because of the injuries, and um, it, you know, just that that passion has always burned inside of me because I, I guess. You know, I I never got to really experience a four year type of program uh, on the college football field, and and that's why I love the game so much.
0: Right on. And post college, Joe, uh, it it I, maybe not even post college, it maybe even occurred for you while you were still uh, you know at Fordham. At what point did you kind of anticipate you know a eventually getting into a career in football in some form, or or did you almost you know almost psychologically in the back of your mind were, were setting yourself up for uh something in you know within that uh world of football or did you really at the time maybe you didn't even know if how would you get back into
1: football? yeah well funny story is when i was a kid and i know we're backtracking here but when i was a kid in in the mid 80s um i i had a huge passion for for football as you know i i stated it before but we had a personal friend that was good friends with um, Ralph Hawkins, which was at the time the defensive secondary coach for uh, the Seattle Seahawks and, and former head coach Chuck Knox. So um, in the mid-'80s, I would be the ball boy for uh, the Seattle Seahawks um, oh, wow. when they used to come into town for the Jets and Giants. So uh, 1984, the Jets play uh, Seattle and um, – mm-hmm. The Seahawks come to town and we're in Shea Stadium, uh, you know, meeting everybody. Um, I'm the ball boy. They play the game the next day and Dick Emberg is there. Merlin Olson is there from NBC. Um, and, you know, Coach Hawkins introduces me to, you know, back in the day, uh, Reggie McKenzie, um, Jim Zorn, Steve Largent. Uh, so I loved, loved that experience. And, you know, 1985 comes. <laughs> they play again and it's in giant stadium east rutherford and you know that experience with those players we're talking steve largent was my favorite uh one of my favorite players growing up as a kid and um and you know he was a former senator but just the way he played the game and his hands um never dropped a pass back in the day and got to meet him personally
0: definitely not one of those deep I receivers always,
1: <laughs> <Back> <laughs> yeah right he, he blue collar. <laughs> yeah blue collar back in the day right and um and so you know to meet him and, and the original kurt warner everybody forgets kurt warner was a running back at, at penn state back in the day right. got to meet him you know for seattle um that experience of, of playing football with him you know I, I was at a walkthrough in 1985 in giant stadium and it was the, the Saturday before the game. And and they're playing football um, in terms of just like a two-hand touch game. And I got involved in that game. And there was a safety called Keith Simpson that just took me aside and, and played catch with me. And from, I always wanted to be a part of the game of football. I never thought I would work in, in the industry. Um, I had an opportunity at an early age after I had knee surgery. Um, and I stopped playing in, in college. Uh, you know, I want to say ninety one, ninety two in that area. Um, Ralph Hawkins reached out to me, and, and he was uh, a scout for the Arizona ca- uh, Cardinals, and he asked me to be his assistant scout. You know, go on the road with him and and, and really, you know, in the summer and, and learn the ropes. And I declined, <laughs> and uh, and who knew that I'd be working in the industry like years later? It's uh, it, it's really it's unbelievable when I look back. But the game of football for me. I, I mean I I just I'm I, I'm an avid junkie John you know that and uh, I love the game I love everything about it
0: Absolutely and then post college uh, you you know you went through a few different um you know you know career paths that you had kind of chosen and the one constant that kept kind of pulling at you um even though you were you know at the time, you, you've mentioned me before, you know, working on Wall Street and, uh, you know, making good money, but still you found yourself on Saturdays working, uh, you know, college football games and it continued to pull and continue to pull at you until, you know, fast forward in a few years and you could even touch on that span too, um, if you will. But uh, kind of explain how your journey, kind of the twists and turns that it took uh, post college uh, to where you found yourself back pursuing uh, college football and the analytical perspective that you're taking now is a full-time job
1: yeah so i i was always at the time in in my dad was a commodity trader and um in, in the summers when i was in high school i used to be a runner on the trading floor and that was my summer job i would i would go into new york city with my father and i would you know work uh as a runner running tickets back and forth uh on wall street uh for the commodity the comex exchange and um After college, uh, I was an economic major, but after college, um, I I wanted to get involved in the business. And, you know, the money was great, but it was a very fast-paced environment that wasn't really made for kids. You know, either you get it or you don't. And you have to really pick things up really, really quickly. Otherwise, even as a, a clerk, as what they call them, you, you won't survive. You have to, you have to learn on the fly. And they, there's not a, a, I want to say a textbook on, you know, they sit you down and they walk you through it's, you know, from day one, you have to learn everything about the business uh, in terms of figuring it out on your own. They'll teach you certain things, but, uh, at the end of the day, it's up to you. And, um, about two years after working on the floor, um, I worked for a big uh, hedge fund that traded uh, crude oil and, um, and uh, gold and silver. Um, And after that, I I became a trader. I traded options and I traded uh, gold futures, but you know, you have to break down numbers in order to be successful um, in that industry. It's, it's statistics. It's, It's pattern recognition. It's the ability to understand where the markets are going from a fundamental perspective. And then after that, it's an analytical. Certain numbers uh, are important, support and resistance numbers. Um, And all during that time, it's important that I I still had the passion to to follow college football. Like, you know, after work was over, I would still – follow the paper and it's amazing because you're talking about a day and age where there was no internet you know mid 90s early 90s you had all your information in a paper for the most part which is pretty incredible in terms of how we get information today and
0: not to cut you off joe but it, it another thing that kind of struck to me now is um when you were talking about breaking down the analytical information and statistics and everything at Wall Street, again, it's something that struck a chord with me is being someone who's around you and sees when you break down college football statistics and analytics and all of those things, it really kind of paints the picture a little bit better, uh, you know, for me, where it even made more sense. You know, your brain is kind of been programmed almost to uh, throughout your life from breaking down tapes at an early age to breaking down the numbers on wall street. <laughs> but one thing I asked before we leave wall street is, um, is there any, you know, kind of good story from your time on wall street that, uh, you know, is something that kind of stuck in your mind that not, not necessarily sports related, but just something on, you know, on wall street. I think a lot of people, it, it strikes an intrigue with them, you know, just the whole fast paced atmosphere that's going on there. But is there any one story that kind of sticks out from your time with doing that?
1: Well, there's two actually. I mean, you have to understand with the stress of Wall Street that a lot of hijinks does, you know. Come on, you know, when when you're when you're dealing with you know uh, positions and the ability to make or lose money, you could work a whole month, month and a half in Wall Street and lose money. So that's the type of stress that that you're dealing with each and every day. But two particular stories stand out. One was, and it didn't happen to me. I just know about about it, it during my time there. Was um, every big lottery the group of guys used to go in and, and put in uh, an amount of, uh, you know, a pool of money, you know, $100, $150 worth of lottery tickets, quick picks. Right. And um, what happened was, um, so it was on a fr- uh, Monday morning after the lottery happened on Saturday in New York, and one of the uh, traders came in, and um, what happened was uh, he looked at the, the tickets in the paper, saw that they were not losers, uh, they were all losers, and just threw them back into the drawer. So then he had an idea. He went downstairs and purchased uh, a lottery ticket with the winning numbers for the upcoming lottery on Tuesday, and he stuck it in the stack. And his partner comes in and he goes, "I didn't have a chance to uh, to uh, look at the tickets. Why don't you check them?" <laughs> and and and. The partner's looking through the tickets. He's not looking at the dates of the tickets because what, you know, they, they purchased them on the same day. Right. So he, you know, he thinks they're all good. He's looking through the paper and all of a sudden he realizes that, you know, he thinks they won the lottery. Like, you know, that's the dirtiest trick
0: you could ever play on somebody.
1: (laughs) 30 or 40 million dollars. And, and what happens is, is, he starts cursing out everybody. <laughs> I never liked you. <laughs> you know, he starts giving the guy the finger. He walks out and buy and goes to buy a car. They have a huge fight. It, it was it was. He went out and buy, to buy a Porsche. He, he was going to quit. He was going to get out of the industry. The whole bit. You guys suck. You all. You know. And it was uh, it was a joke. You know, had to come, come to figure out that he didn't win anything.
0: So <laughs> what uh, that was with that one. Guy?
1: Uh, that was, uh, that was years ago <laughs> that was, that was early, <laughs> early nineties, John. But, um, you know, uh, another one is, uh, Jim Rice, uh, a guy gets a, a signed, uh, autograph from Jim Rice, a baseball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had a, uh, we had a sports store in four world trade center that was in the bottom of uh four world trade center. And they used to sell, you know, footballs, baseballs, and, um, so he, uh, he puts it in the drawer. It's in a case. And uh, one, of the, one of the traders goes, gives a clerk uh, some money. He goes, go get a baseball. And uh, they go down, they get a baseball. And uh, they forge Jim Rice's name on it. And on there, they write, F you, F you and your son. <laughs> yeah, Jim Rice sucks. <laughs> and they take the Jim Rice baseball out and they put the <laughs> counterfeit one in. And they toss it to him as he's trading huge fist fight, everything going on uh, you know stuff like that would would be the commonplace uh on the trading floor and you know fights were uh each and every day um you know, and just just unbelievable stories
0: i'm guessing with the uh the high stress level, the high don't always go over so well on wall street
1: <laughs> no, not at all, not at all, not at all and you know another time was when when the World Trade Centers were there, um, we used to have a Burger King right uh, right underneath the World Trade Center, and uh, they used to call up Burger King, and um, they would order like thirty whoppers, uh, forty you know forty uh, French fries, uh, you know uh, sodas, and they they would look with binoculars down to see somebody walking into uh, uh, you know Burger King, and they'd be like the guy with the orange shirt is going to pick up pick up the uh, the order, and they used to run down to go behind the guy, and they would want to see what happens when the guy goes to the counter, and, uh, and he'd pick up the order, and they'd be like, you know, $2,000 or whatever, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, stuff like that was, uh, you know, a dime a dozen each and every week. So uh, I guess you
0: need to do something know. to lighten the mood up a little bit, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's. It, I'm not proud of some of the stuff that we did back in the day, but uh, you know, not all of it was was bad. But uh, you know, you gotta have fun somehow. So uh, it, it was good. We wound up paying for it, so
0: it was good. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> uh, now, now post working on uh, Wall Street, um, you know, is uh, college football back onto that uh, topic? is, uh, you know, something that still stayed very prevalent, you know, throughout your life and things that were going on. And kind of take us through the pathway now of uh, when you started to realize that uh, hosting, you know, your own, first a podcast, then to a radio show, and then doing some of a lot of the interviews, a lot of the uh, events that, that you uh, regularly cover, to some of the big college football events. I've had the pleasure of, you know, you giving me the invitation to come out there and film with you while you did the interviewing. But at what point did you kind of start to segue towards that, that host and interview type of mentality?
1: Yeah, well, while I was in Wall Street in 2001, I used to uh, follow the games religiously. And I used to tape the games in my apartment when I was living in Manhattan. And I had a, a colleague of mine that uh, grew up with uh, a guy in high school Um, that uh, was the head of research for uh, ABC. And they were looking for weekend researchers uh, for college football. And um, he said to me, you know, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, I do it for free. Why not? You know, if you're going to pay me $300 uh, a day to watch college football, why not? So uh, from 2001 to 2010, I was uh, one of the college football researchers Uh, on the ABC sports college football studio show with John Saunders and Terry Bowden back in the day. And, um, and so, you know, it, it, it was, it was a time where, you know, I I met some great people and, and always got more involved in the game. Um, And, you know, at that time, you know, uh, I was at the head of my career in terms of, uh, in terms of trading. And, um, you know, after, in 2008, the market, you know, crashed and went electronic, and basically my livelihood as a trader was, was not there. And uh, and it was Coach Bowden that actually got me back involved in terms of really concentrating on, on college football. He's like, you know more college football than anybody I ever know. Um, you know, why don't you do it? And uh, I built a website and really – from that point on, in, in like 2010, 2011, when I was going through my divorce, that was really where I got more, most involved in terms of the game of college football.
0: Absolutely. And at that time, you know, obviously, Joe, the, your brand now, Go For The Two, uh, is uh, what the website that you're referring to. But uh, take me through kind of the process of, um, you know, what you originally thought Go For The Two would be and, you know, what it's become, uh, you know, these these few years later.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I always play the game aggressively in terms of you always have to be aggressive in terms of, uh, you know, you have to take it to the opposition. So um, for me, um, I built it as a brand in terms of uh, to really show how I used to play the game and and more importantly, just, just to be the best in terms of I don't do anything half-assed. And um, I built it in the sense of I want to be a, a, an extension of my personality, but my extension uh, of knowledge of the game of college football. and And really that's what I've tried to do in terms of building the website, hosting, um, breaking down games ana- analytically and statistically, um, and, and, you know, I'm still continuing to get better each and every day. So uh, that that's the whole premise behind Go for the Two.
0: Absolutely. And it's something that uh, one experience of us, you know, as I mentioned, uh, working together at, uh, you know, various events, I believe it was at the Maxwell Awards, um, the, the private media uh, session that they were having a couple of years back, and there's one interview in particular that really jumps out to me that kind of defines um, the level of knowledge that you have about the game when you're doing an interview that we were filming with uh, Dabo Sweeney, and I think this was – I believe Clemson had won the national championship the previous year that year as well, or maybe the – They were in the game. I believe Alabama may have won that year. But regardless of that, that's irrelevant. Um, But you're talking with Dabo Sweeney, and you're breaking down, um, you know, hardcore analytics and statistics. And Dabo Sweeney, and you can see it on the the, the actual video, on the interview. We'll have to make sure we, um, we link to it when this is posted. But Dabo's looking at you like just baffled with the amount of knowledge that you're giving out. And he, you know, blatantly says to you, halfway joking, and he's like, is somebody feeding you these numbers in your other ear? How do you know all this? <laughs> but that's yeah, well, um, that, you know, that kind of defines who you are. It's a uh this might not be the most PC or proper thing to say, but it, it's it's almost like you're I, I tell people, it's like he's the rain man of college football. He knows so much more than any individual should possibly be able to know.
1: Yeah, I and I appreciate that, buddy. You, you know, it, it it's 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 exactly, you know, the game of college football, Dabo Sweeney, to, for him to say that to me, you know, it, it's a compliment that, you know, number one, you know, he – feels that way about my knowledge in terms of statistical information. And that's something that I pride myself on in terms of, you know, being able to memorize uh, in terms of former players and, uh, you know, the ability to um, just talk about the game from a X's and O's standpoint, but statistically memorization, recognizing important stats for him to say that. Um, is 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 a compliment and uh and something that i try to strive for in each and every podcast and show absolutely
0: and and i think it's important to let people know that when you even when it's not a video and you might hear joe on the radio if it's a podcast wherever the case may be he's not looking off of notes when he spits these numbers out he's literally doing it off the top of his dome and we've done other uh videos in the past where you know it would be a, a kind of a breakdown of an upcoming game that's coming up and I, I I kid you not, you know we hit record and Joe's going for eight minutes straight, nonstop, just numbers and knowledge. And they could get to something at eight minutes and fifty-two seconds that he didn't like, it will start over and do it again. <laughs> it could be a little frustrating for the cameraman, but that's just the the, the level of uh, uh... You, you know Joe puts into it. But on that note, Joe, it's in, I think you've kind of answered a couple of these questions along the way with telling your story. But going back to a very young age. You, you're with recording the games on the VHS cassettes. So obviously, your your brain was already starting starting to get programmed to break down analytics. And then it looks it sounds to me like your time on Wall Street and having to familiarize yourself with numbers so well and be so well versed in numbers and statistics and that industry has kind of all accumulated that. Plus, your love for the game of college football has led to what has your your mind been able to to kind of think this way. But what would you credit To, you know, being some of the other things are the reasons why you're able to analyze, remember these numbers. And it's not just knowing the numbers, but knowing the relevance of these numbers in certain situations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. I mean, um, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I went to a preparatory school, like I said, down Bosco. We were forced to, uh, you know, for SAT purposes, memorize uh, four chapters of the old SAT books, you know, words. And, um, you know, there was like 500 words per, per, you know, week that we had to memorize and, and break down and study. And, um, so it, it was important for me to really work with flashcards and work with, you know, things that, uh, were important to memorize. And from the X and o, X's and O standpoint, the thing that was important in terms of that was, um, I've always wanted to be a student of the game. Uh, You know, when I was in high school, um, I would stay my senior year and and break down game film. Uh, I I was the only one, uh, you know, breaking down the opponent's game film uh, on a a Friday night, uh, you know, for an extra two hours after practice. You know, the coach gave me – I I used to be the video guy for the – for the team, meaning I used to know how to work the projector because I was there uh, two hours every Friday, breaking down the opposition keys tendencies. I always wanted to understand the game of football and get better, and um, i I wanted to be the best at it, maybe athletically, I wasn't maybe the you know physically, but from a mental or a knowledge aspect, that was something that uh, I always wanted to do, so you put those two together uh and you do have uh, a very explosive type of uh uh you know combination there so uh, i i think that's what i attributed to uh as a kid
0: absolutely and i know this is probably going to be an impossible question for you to answer but if you had to again going back to moments two or three of your favorite moments um in college football, that you know, it could be for a personal reason, it could be for the event that it happened. But what are a couple of your your favorite college football memories?
1: Wow, I mean, you know, uh, it's whew, those are hard because there's so many. But you know, for me, um, I guess like from a, a, a just a game uh, performance. I mean, I was enamored with the 1990 team uh, of Colorado and Eric the enemy. And, um, you know, for me in 1989, when they knocked off uh, Nebraska for the first time, um, I remember, you know, I was sitting down in my room watching that game and, you know, seeing Darian Hagan and J.J. Flanagan running down the sidelines uh, for Colorado and Boulder was a very impressive time for me. Um and then in 1998, uh, 1997, uh, I loved the Tennessee Volunteers. That's uh, what you I'm know, talking loved, about. Peyton. <laughs> <laughs> loved Peyton. Loved Loved Al Wilson back in the day. Um, Jamal Lewis when he was there. Um, Raynock Thompson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But I took the trip from New Jersey to uh, Knoxville. And I watched Peyton Manning's one of Peyton Manning's last games in 1997 against South Carolina with Anthony Wright and Deuce Staley. And um, and for me,
0: on that note, Joe, again, not to cut you off. um, You know, obviously, anyone who knows me knows that um, I'm from Tennessee. I'm I'm curious. You know, your your someone with your background and the well-versedness that you have within the game of college football. And, you know, obviously anybody who's in the Northeast knows that we don't really have that so much here in the Northeast, but, you know, someone from the South, you know, football is king. And I'm just kind of curious what your, uh, your thoughts were on the experience of, you know, the 110,000 strong in Knoxville.
1: Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, when I went there, it was unbelievable. And obviously they've made additions to, um, you know, the, uh, the stadium. Um, but it was unbelievable for me. I mean, I, I was right under the V, the O, the L and the S it was under uh, the McDonald's was orange and white, right, white Cumberland Avenue. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I was just very impressed with the fans and the fan base, uh, out in Tennessee, uh, loving their team. Um, for me, it was really a a great time and and a time that I'll never forget. So, um, it just incredible experience, incredible experience for me.
0: Absolutely. And as we start to kind of wrap things up, Joe, it, you know, a a lot of the listeners would probably be angry at me if we didn't start to, uh, look forward to the the fall season and kind of get some of your thoughts on some things that you might, uh, you know, anticipate. I know we, as you mentioned, are quite a ways away from uh, college football season getting here. Uh, so it's very early in the process. Um, but uh, what are some of your thoughts for uh, expectations that you think are going to occur, you know, six months from now?
1: You know, I, I think you're going to see a, a wide open year. I know Clemson and Alabama will be there, but with the, with the quarterback transfers that we've seen uh, fields going to Ohio state, Uh, I think you're going to see, you know, uh, more teams compete this year. I think we had a a little bit of an off year, a down year, uh, in terms of uh, we had a lot of mediocrity last year in college football, and we had about maybe three, four, or possibly five teams uh, that were maybe head and shoulders above the rest. But I think this year is going to be wide open. I know Clemson uh, is there with Trevor Lawrence and Alabama with Tua but I think you're going to see a lot of the other teams that maybe built up some younger talent within the conference's challenge and I think we're going to get back to a, a very competitive year within college football where uh, we don't see a, a bunch of six and five teams heading into uh, week number 14 so uh, I'm very excited about the year um and I think 2019 is going to prove as a as a stepping stone for for possibly uh expansion or things to come
0: absolutely and the, uh, I'm curious, just some of your thoughts on, uh, you know, obviously with you knowing the, um, you know, the college football landscape so well with the NFL draft coming up, you know, obviously there's a lot of questions surrounding Kyler Murray and, you know, if he has the height and the size to make it at the NFL level, but not even necessarily just focusing on Kyler Murray, but, uh, you know, what are some of your thoughts on some, uh, some of the players going into the draft and maybe some of those, um, unknowns to a degree that people don't know about who you think could be really successful at the next level.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, you know, the Kyler Murray argument. I've always said this about about players and, and, and coaches on the next level and I can't figure it out. You think about some of the dynamic playmakers that we've seen in college football over the years and uh everybody reverts back to Michael Vick, uh, in terms of the dual threat quarterback, but even prior to that we had guys like Randall Cunningham uh at the NFL level. And I've always said that like I'm very confused as to why the NFL used to draft players and not put them into a system that really showcased their strengths as a player. Um, Why they forced the envelope uh, in trying to take shotgun quarterbacks and force them under center. And and I think now with the uh, young offensive minds within the league, you're seeing uh, a more wide open uh, ability to just really throw, uh, I want to say predictability out of the window and really showcase really formations and the players' attributes uh, on the next level. And that's something that we haven't seen before. And I know it takes time, but I don't know why it has taken so long. Um, That being said, I think Kyler Murray does have huge upside because of his escapability. Now, I just, in my opinion, I don't feel he's as complete of a quarterback as Baker Mayfield was in terms of being able to read coverage, being able to, uh, you know, lead his team back. Uh, That's the one thing I think that Baker Mayfield, when you compare both quarterbacks, he had one of the highest completion percentages uh, from a three year span of a college quarterback. And you know, on the next level, that's the most important thing. And granted, Kyler Murray did complete over 70% of his passes, but it was in one year. Uh, Can that continue? You know, uh, back when he was at Texas A&M, he was an inconsistent quarterback, uh, changed systems. Uh, Two years ago, he completed 85% of his passes in limited duty. Can he do that on the next level? Um, I think he can, but I don't know if he'll be able to make as smooth of a transition as Baker Mayfield has, uh, just because of that factor. We'll see. I mean, I hope he can, but I think it'll take him a couple more years. I didn't think Baker Mayfield was uh, a sure shot. I thought Lamar Jackson was the best quarterback from an athletical standpoint and had the best upside. Now, Baker Mayfield seems to be ahead of Lamar right now, but you know, let's see two, three years down the road where both quarterbacks are. Um, upcoming, I think this draft is, if from a quarterback standpoint, John, I don't think it's as good. Um, as we've seen in years past, uh, Dwayne Haskins is good. I don't think he's going to be elite like the New York giants or some of the people in New York think he'll be. I think he's a great quarterback, uh, in terms of college, but, uh, I don't know if he'll be elite. I think he could be a good quarterback on the next level. I don't know if he'll be elite. Uh, the under, under the radar guys, um, you know, th- I don't know yet. You know, uh, I'm breaking down the draft right now. Uh, I'm looking at certain team needs and, and, and positional players. Um, you know, I think Will Greer is a guy for me that uh, I think can make, make the transition. Ryan Finley uh, is another quarterback from NC state that, you know, everybody's talking about Daniel Jones from Duke. Um, not sold on Daniel Jones. A lot comes from the tutelage of David Cutcliffe because he worked with Peyton. Uh, Daniel Jones, for me, was inconsistent. I know he had a great ball game against Temple, but uh, being that next guy, being the next Payton, being the next elite quarterback on the next level. I'm not, I, I, in my opinion, I'm not sold on Daniel Jones. Um, we'll see. I, I like Greer, um, Justin Herbert. Not sold on him either. He didn't show me enough. Uh, at the collegiate level in terms of rogue game experience. He didn't lead his team to a solid rogue win. In my opinion, I know he beat Washington and was in Eugene, but he was an inconsistent quarterback. I know we got the win over Michigan state. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, I would say two under the radar guys for me, or will Greer and Ryan Finley. I think Finley, uh, w- will turn out to be a solid pro if given an opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And if, <laughs> if anybody else is like me that entire conversation was fascinating and as joe mentioned it's something that uh... a conversation that's ongoing So the best way to keep up with Joe and continue the conversation with him and a lot of the analytics and breaking down of, uh, you know, the whole game of college football going into the draft and the the game of football in general is to follow Joe on social media. So, Joe, uh, let people know how they can keep up with you um, with your Twitter and, you know, checking out your website and everything, but give them all the information so uh, the listeners out there can start following you. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at GoForTheTwo, the number two, or they can go to my website, uh, and they can listen to me on various networks like VEASAN, uh, Fantasy Sports Network, uh, Fox Sports. So I'm, I'm out there in terms of college football, and they can pick up my 2019 college football preview uh, in Amazon early May uh, 2019.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And what other uh, question, Joe, for you that I'm just out of my own curiosity, it, just wondering what your thought processes are, because obviously more jobs for, you know, college players who maybe played at a school that they don't get to showcase themselves is the availability of other leagues, such as the Alliance of American Football, uh, which uh, at the time of us recording this is... Um, only one week into its history. So it's very hard to gauge, but I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on, you know, that platform, um, of a AAF being available. And, you know, obviously bill polling's a guy, you know, and a lot of people associated with the league are people that, you know, um, just kind of your thoughts, um, you know, on the viability of a league like that. And, um, you know, if you think it's a platform that uh, is beneficial that could help guys continue their careers and possibly get all the way to the top.
1: Yeah, I think it's good for the league. I think it's good for players. I mean, people want to watch college football uh, during the off season. They want to watch pro football in the off season. So uh, it bridges both gaps. And the fact that the AFL has now gone into, I want to say, traditionally college towns uh, that don't have pro football is great. I mean, you look at teams like Birmingham and Salt Lake City that are playing today. Um, I think that's good for, the, good for the league. It brings fan interest and, and can help players get back. Or more importantly, I think in two or three years, I think that the, the league will sustain it. And I think they're going to they're gonna have, if they do it right, they'll have the viewership to maintain a long standing career. They're not trying to compete with the NFL, which is the best thing. And as long as they do that, I think they're going to be just fine.
0: Absolutely, and I mean, you're kind of in a in a position where you're forced to like the AAF because there's no extra points, so they have to go for the two. <laughs> so you pretty much love have it, no John. choice. I love it. <laughs> you I have know. to watch they the I know, they should have
1: consulted with me on this. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: But absolutely, Joe. Um, so everybody out there, once again, I want to highly encourage you right now, while you're listening to this, pull your phone out, open up Twitter, Follow at go for the two. That's the number two at go for the two to follow Joe. And you'll hear Joe breaking down, um, you know, not d- only during the season, uh, the off season throughout the entire year, entire year. And I can promise you that you will, uh, you know, get so much in-depth analysis and and kind of the, the way Joe breaks down the game in a fascinating nature that absolute must follow so i definitely encourage everybody to do that and uh joe just to kind of close this whole thing out uh the final question we always ask is um you know this being the fueled by passion podcast is the simple question i have for you in closing is what fuels your passion
1: Just to get better each and every day, John, just the ability to be the best. Now, you know, you're always trying to strive for more in each and every industry, but if you want to be the best, you'll learn, you'll, you'll, you'll train, you'll, you'll always want to acquire more and more knowledge to make you the best at the game. And, And that's the burning desire that each of us have in terms of being at the top of our industry. So, um that's you know i just want to be the best each and every day uh of covering the game of college football
0: there you have it so one last time i'm gonna tell everybody at go for the two make sure you get out your phones follow joe on twitter and um you know joe's very uh social on twitter so you can open the conversation with him uh he'll definitely respond back to you but joe to close out the show uh just want to thank you one more time and obviously you and i have plenty more business to get to together in the future that we definitely will. But uh, just in closing, uh, I want to express my gratitude for you coming on the podcast.
1: Anytime, Joe. Uh, John, love the show. Love talking college football with you. You're the best in your game as well. So uh, love working with you.
0: That is much appreciated. All right, everybody. So we're going to close it out now. Um, thank you all for listening. Make sure that uh, you subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud. Uh, I'm John Archibald, Resolution Promotions. Make sure to check us out at respromos.com. You can follow me personally on social media at ressports, and Resolution Promotions is at respromos. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Catch you next time.